Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a special Double Bill Political Party Daily featuring the current acting leader of the Scottish Conservative, Jackson Carlaw, and his predecessor, Ruth Davidson. I met both of them up in Edinburgh and I began by talking to Ruth about her use of social media and how it's changed. I, I used to enjoy Twitter. It was the sort of place where you could speak to interesting people about what sort of columns to read or what was a, a good book that was out or, or you know it was it was a kind of forum and now it's just a lot of people shouting at a lot of other people and it's it's yeah. a bit of a cesspit <laughs> and apart from uh, the sort of I've lost my husband's wedding ring can everybody on Twitter help me find it or I found a teddy on the tube and can anybody return it to or the your the piece of perspective yeah, in 2016. It's, it's, it's a pretty dark and horrible place these days so I, I have changed my social media use and it's far more mundane much less interactive it's more transmit than received just because you know, it's just horrible. So, also, what's lovely is how many people have muted, which does give you respite. So oh, man. You put up a tweet, I don't know, it's vaguely political, because I'm much, I'm much more political, much less personal than I used to be. And, like, the, the analytics tell you you've got 400 replies to you, and you click on it and you don't, can only see 20 because you've <laughs> muted everyone else. You're just like, all, all these moon howlers have no idea that it's like water off a duck's back. <laughs> oh, it's, it, but it is water off a duck's back, is it? It doesn't, it doesn't get to you. Uh, I, you know, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, I think it can get pretty nasty on there sometimes. And does it? Does your change? Obviously, social media is its own sort of world in a way, but it's an extension of the real world. People are real, and feelings get hurt. Is yeah. that is that a, a reflection, not just of your attitude towards social media, but maybe towards politics in general, that you're in a kind of steady retreat? Um, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think, um, and I, you know, and actually, as I said, my social media use is probably more political than at any point it's ever been because it was always a place that I tried to show the bits of me that, that weren't the politician. And, and actually, it's just, you know, sort of. <laughs> it's not <laughs> worth it. Uh, so um, so it's probably a lot more pictures of people in, like, blue jackets with placards saying only the Conservatives can beat the SNP here than it ever has been before. So, But that's, that tends to be what this campaign is. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the rise of other social media uh, or non-social media, so and private lists like whatsapp and all the rest of it you can actually talk to some of the people that you would broadcast to you can have a conversation with so you don't need to do it in that kind of way but you don't feel like i I suppose what i was getting at is you're no longer the leader of the scottish conservatives um but i'm not dead yet no god i I have to say like standing down it is a bit like reading obituaries when you're when you're not dead yet you know you're not you're you're at your own funeral watching what people are saying (laughs) about you so yeah that was that was interesting i have to say but in a nice way uh, some of them were, <laughs> some less so. But in politics, when people go, people tend to be magnanimous, don't they? 
yeah, you've been to Scotland before, haven't you? Oh, many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, to be fair, there was a lot of really, really nice stuff written. Uh, and yeah, and, and that's nice. I mean, I guess politics is one of those uh, professions where your wins and losses are on the board before you go. So you, you yes. kind of know what you're judged on. And, you know, they're there for all to see. And, and that's fine. I stand by my record. I stand by the team that we've built here. Uh, and I think we're going to surprise a lot of people at this election that's coming. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because obviously mm. last time in 2017, you have this phenomenal result where you get 30% of the vote in Scotland. Having been written off for years, you know, there yeah. are all sorts of jokes about uh, the, the lack of Conservatives in Scotland. This time in 2019, do you think the con- Scottish Conservatives can equal or, or emulate that victory? Well, I, victory? I have to say well, that, victory, I, that I, result. I mean, right. what's really interesting is I think that Scotland is quite a, an interesting electoral patch. Uh, at this um, general election. I think there's quite interesting things that are going to happen here. And yet we've only had one poll for Scotland. Mm. So people are trying to apply universal swings on UK-wide stuff or from that one poll that was several weeks ago now. And, it, you know, that is not representative. Um, there are bits of politics that I would like to think I'm quite good at. There are bits of politics where, you know, not everyone has the full package of all skills at the highest level. One of the things that I think I do quite well is... Uh, run campaigns, can look at polling data, can look at the mosaicing. We have built a, a team and a machine here in Scotland that we spent eight years building where we know where our people are or the people that are susceptible to our message. We know what buttons to press, we know how to find them and to turn them out on a polling day. Um, and we always tend to, um, or certainly in, in the recent past, have tended to perform a couple of percentage points above the polls, which is good. Um, but also do a lot better than the commentators are saying we're going to do. Because they had, you know, quite rightly, we had 25 years of stagnation and decline up here. Uh, and, and then we, we roared back into it in 2016, 2017. Um, you know, I, I think we're going to do pretty well. Uh, I think there are a couple of tough seats to defend. But I also think that nobody is talking about our target seats here. And I think that there are seats like Lanark and Hamilton West, sorry, Lanark and Hamilton East, where we're 266 votes behind. Perth and North Perthshire, we're only 21 votes behind. You look at Central Air, uh, you look at uh, Argyll and Butte, and we're in the running t- to nick all of these. It's, uh, so it's not just a defence election for us. It's a defence and attack election. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that success has been personally attributed to you and, and your personality and your style. Yeah, which is, is is lovely, but not true. Like, you know, no political party is one person, I think. But leadership matters. I, I think it does, and I think people respond to, um, you know, whether they like or don't like a leader, whether they respect or don't respect a leader, whether they agree with, don't agree with the leader. But, it, you know, a, 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 the leadership is one element of a party's performance. It's not the only element of mm. a party's performance. Um, you know, I... I I was front and centre for a long time and that comes with its own pressures uh, and it comes with, um, you know, you taking the blame as, as well as the plaudits and, and that's fine and, and you know that when you sign up to it, of course yeah. you do. Um, but, you know, don't think that just because I'm no longer leading the Scottish Conservatives that the Scottish Conservatives are no longer a force because we are. We built a really good team here and there's a lot of talent coming through our ranks. And, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm proud of it. Like, I'm, I'm proud not just of the contribution that I hope that I've made to public life in Scotland and to, to politics in, in Scotland and, and, and to a degree across the UK. But I'm, I'm proud of the people that have, have come forward and that I, I've helped champion and that people within the party have got elected because nobody gets themselves elected. You know, it's a team effort to get people elected and who are now operating at a, at a high level. And how do you feel personally about this campaign? Is there a sense of relief that you're not in charge of it? Do you know, it's so bad. It's, it's, it's just... It's like two minds because it's the first time in about 
a decade that we had like a campaign launch that I wasn't at. I wasn't even invited to it. And I was a bit like, oh. You weren't invited? Well, well, well uh, I was uh, in Parliament doing my job, you know. And uh, yeah, so so the leader, Jackson, was, was there and all the activists and all the rest of it. And it was, you know, front and centre in one of our target seats in Perth and North Perthshire. And, and I was watching it on the television going, oh, I'm not there. And did you have FOMO? <laughs> Fear of missing out? Uh, a little bit. But then, you know, on the other hand of that, I, I don't have the capacity to fight an election at the level at which I'd set myself, I'd set for the team. And, you, you know, I, I just, I didn't have enough in the tank. And, and at the point at which I stood down, I mean, it was almost eight years. And political leadership is attritional. I mean, it takes yeah. pieces of yourself that you you didn't even know could be chipped away. And, you know, I'm looking at, at Jackson and there's a bit of jealousy there that he's getting to do all of the, all of the leader things. And he's doing it brilliantly. He's doing really, really well. Um, but I'm also thinking, you know, I could not, at the moment, I'm I'm going around all of these uh, seats and I'm I'm helping out and doing the activist thing and it's good fun. But I'm home at night to tuck my boy in, my baby. And you know, at the weekend, the last couple of weekends, I've been taking him to baby swimming and we've kept up his baby swimming class. And and if I was the leader at this now, I, I couldn't do that. You know, um, two weekends ago, he took his first steps, and I would have, you know, I, I you don't get that time back. And if I'd missed that because yeah. I was off campaigning somewhere else, then you know, it's it's like these footballers who don't attend the birth of their own children do you know what i mean I, I don't i don't want to miss that time too I've, I've i've done a shift i i did it to the best of my abilities and knowing my limitations as well as what i was able to do and you know my, my shift is is over it's somebody else's turn to take it forward now yeah i mean i can't i don't have children myself i can't imagine the uh the pressure and the responsibility of having a young child let alone trying to be a politician but i think one of the frustrations people have in it feels particularly in this area is that Talented politicians are holding themselves to higher standards than less talented colleagues. And the, the field is being deserted by people who are popular and, and talented and that people like. And actually the field is now being left to a, a kind of less desirable, if you like, uh, generation. Can, can I just double check up what of these categories you're putting me in? Oh, into the, into the popular <laughs> oh, okay. sort. Oh, people that's you know, good. Yeah, people yeah, yeah. say, well, Ruth Davidson could be prime minister. Well, Let alone first minister. You're telling me I'm seating the field, but you're sitting in my parliamentary office. Do, do you know what I mean? So it's it's not as if I'm not doing politics, but yeah. I've done a shift. Um, you know, I've I've lasted longer in the job than any previous Scottish political uh, Scottish Conservative leader. I've lasted longer than any Labour leader um, and any uh, SNP leader apart from Alex Salmond. So you know, it's it's not as if. I left the stage prematurely. No. But <laughs> the, well, in terms the of curtain your... was coming down, I think it's fair to say. But I suppose because you're still so young. Oh, bless For you. a leader. But it's bless... true. Oh, you had to add the second <laughs> bit, didn't you? See, just because you're two years younger than me, so unfair. <laughs> but that's it. I mean, when I think of what you've achieved in your life, compared to what I've achieved in mine, you, you've, you've achieved so much and still have so much road left. When you look at Jeremy Corbyn's 70. Yeah, I mean, I... I... Kind of weirdly, I think I think everybody looks at other people and thinks, oh my word, you've achieved so much. What have I been doing with my life? Because I do that with other people. And, you know, you look at uh, whether it's, you know... So I started leading this party when I was 32. and stepped, stepped down at 40. But I'm looking yeah. at... I think Joe Swinson, who's leading a UK party, is is 38 or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some government ministers that are coming through who are, you know, 40, 41, 42, the same age as me, and are running departments and things like that. And and there is a difference, I think, between being in government and running a department than there is in, in being an opposition leader. And I think maybe it's the Presbyterian in me, but you kind of, 
you don't ever think you're that great shakes. You always think that, you know, what other people are doing are more, is more important or more onerous or more responsibility or whatever. Maybe that's just the Scottishness of me, I don't know. Maybe it's, you're kind of like a, a Scottish female Alan Johnson. I was never a postie. <laughs> no, but in the sense that, in a way, is it nice to have the mantle? And obviously, you still have so much road left. That, you know, you could take twenty but, but years out. Like, and I'm, still I'm come not back. done. I, I um, you know, I, I do. Since I stepped down as leader, what's been weird is that people think that I've stopped doing politics completely. Now I kind of get that in the rest of the UK, but in, in Scotland, like I'm still on the telly in the Parliament and like doing stuff. But I do still get stopped in Morrison's by people going, "And uh, are you enjoying your retirement, Hen?" And I'm like, "I'm 41. I'm not retired. I'm still working full time. My wife is working full time. My partner uh, is working full time. You know, I, there was a when I stood down, there was a Polly Toynbee uh, tweet about how." Basically, I was a disgrace to all women because uh, plenty of women combine politics and be and motherhood. And I'm like, yeah, I've not left politics. <laughs> Do you know, like, give me a break. Walk a mile in my shoes and and then come back and tell me, Polly. You know, uh, columnist. You know, I've got a column as well. I do that on top of being a, a politician. Yeah. You know. Slightly different. You you lead a political party and then you tell me like that I'm I'm selling the jersey for women because I really don't think I am and I don't think I have. No, but I suppose it's just that it's a compliment in a way that people would rather you stuck around. In I'm a not sure that was Polly's point. Maybe maybe it's not Polly's point. Maybe other people might be um, slightly uh, uh, more generous than Polly. But in terms of this election, is there? A, yeah. I mean, there must be part of you that's relieved that you don't have to go out there as a leader. And square Boris Johnson's Brexit deal with being a Conservative and Unionist, as you see it? Um, well, I mean, for, for me, um, and I, I said this when I stood down, that yes, part of it was because my family situation had changed and the, the, the trade-offs that you make and the guilt that you have about, you know, whether you're a good sister or daughter or partner or friend or whatever, and whether I wanted to go on and, and, and feel that level of... of conflict about being being you know the, the motherhood thing that had come in as well on, to, on top of that and what you trade off against the policy advances that you're trying to make and, and the politics that you're operating in and the space that you're operating in you know I've, I've been pretty honest about the fact that I've been really conflicted over Brexit so I was you know not just a, a quasi remainer I was you know front and center part of that campaign I believed in it I've spent my entire political life fighting to stay part of one political union or another. It's kind of a, a theme, a light motif. Uh, you know, I kind of like working with other people. Uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, but also because of our experiences here in Scotland, you know, I, I was never part of the, let's rerun it, let's have a people's vote campaign and, and got quite a lot of abuse from people like Alistair Campbell. Um, it, abuse is a bit strong, but, you know, he's, he, was, he, he would have a nibble in public forums, you know, uh, at, at me, which is, is fair enough, because we do disagree. Um, but I genuinely believe that losers' consent is important. And we've seen in Scotland because of how riven the country has been since the independence referendum. Not necessarily just before it, but since it's got worse, not better. Because almost as soon as that vote happened, you had the you know the biggest for- political force in the country saying, you know, it's null and void, let's run it again. Let's just, just keep going. You know, and, and, you know, it is important if you say that a decision is so monumental, it can't be decided by parliamentarians alone. It has to be decided by the individual members of this country. And they turn out, and they turn out in record numbers, and they, you know, they, they make their decision known. 
to turn around and just tell them that they're wrong or that you're not going to do it or that you're just going to cancel it. And, you know, I think that's wrong. And I think it does take people from the losing side to stand up and say that for us to move forward. So for me, the difficulty with Brexit is that there wasn't a, a roadmap of what Brexit looked like. We weren't told on the ballot paper what Brexit we were voting for or against. Yeah. Um, we've had all of these iterations that have come through the parliament. And in terms of, you know, how do I square my position with asking people to vote Conservative, and I have been and I've been all around the country asking them to do so. You know, my issue with Brexit is that I didn't want it to happen, but I absolutely respect the democratic legitimacy of the vote. Absolutely respect that. And therefore, it has to happen. How do I want that to happen? You know, I was happy with May's deal. You know, I would have voted for that if I were an MP. Um, that clearly did not gather support. Nothing gathered support. No deal didn't <laughs> gather support. Uh, a deal didn't gather support. Another vote didn't gather support. There was there was no support in Parliament. It was yeah. completely, you know, there was an absolute stasis and a vacuum that 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 did not serve our country well. So we were always going to head to an electoral event. So I don't, you know, I don't dispute the Prime Minister calling this election. You know, I preferred, quite honestly, um, and I've been very open about this. You know, I prefer May's deal to Boris's deal. Um, however, I fully accept that May tried to get it through three times and failed, and this one has a chance, and there was an indicative vote that it could get through. Yeah. Uh, and I've been utterly sure about the fact that I would prefer a deal than no deal. You know, for, for me, no deal and, and all of the ramifications and the churn and the chaos that that would involve would be unacceptable. So um, I, I do think that that is the option on the table that, that best satisfies those things. And I think that the counter, I mean, what else do you vote for in Scotland? you are voting for some iteration of putting Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. And I don't think that he's fit to be Prime Minister of this country. And it's not just some of the associations he's had in the past, some of the um, policies that he's espousing, but it's the deals that he would do in order to get there. You know, and, and we've heard people like John Curtis, the polling guru, yeah. the sophologist of the, you know, of, of the century, saying that he would need more than, you know, he would need more than that. And, and... The, the deal is on not just one referendum, which he wants on Brexit, but it's it's two. It's another one on, on independence. And, and the country doesn't want it. The Not just the pro-UK majority in Scotland don't want that, but lots of people who voted for independence last time don't want it either. There's, you know, there, there isn't the support for that. Uh, we see how it pans out, I suppose. So the, the election still feels like it's ages away. But do you think, I mean, obviously Scotland is such a high remain supporting part of the union. Yeah, but there's hierarchies of concern. Yes. And the, this may be, and we've had different elections for a long time. The 2017 vote in Scotland was a vote on a wholly different question than the 2017 vote that was being held in sort of England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And the context of us winning all of these 13 seats of, you know, the... Scottish National Party losing 21 seats across a 59-seat spread, you know, a huge chunk of their support was because they just asked for another independence referendum, you know, like six, seven weeks before that um, that, in the, that that general election was called. And the country said, no, we don't want one. And that, that was post-Brexit. So the, the, the hierarchy of concerns in Scotland are different for individuals, but there is a huge swathe of the country for whom uh, constitutional questions over Scotland's membership of the UK is a much is a greater degree of magnitude than than whether the UK should stay part of, of the EU. In terms of making the case for the union, um, yeah. one of the strengths really of the of the no campaign was that it was cross party. Yeah. Um, now that was also a weakness um, to some extent. But how much does the 
collapse of Scottish Labour worry you in terms of having an ally that can reach different types of voters to promote the union in a different way? Well, I think there are different iterations of political parties and the Scottish Labour that I saw growing up, um, and I, I was never you know, part of the clan, but I, I think it, it's hard for people to understand the kind of hegemonic grip that Scottish Labour had in this country for so long, um, you know, regularly returning 40 plus MPs from Scotland, the bulwark of, of, of any government that was formed down there. I mean, in the last hundred years, I think there's been 27 general elections of which the Labour Party has come either first or second in Scotland, 26 of them. This year, they're going to come fourth. That's never happened before in their 100 and plus year history. Um, in terms of seats. So that's that's my prediction. Um, you know, uh, this is going to be an extinction level event for Scottish Labour. I've fought campaigns when I when I became leader of the Scottish Conservatives. We just had a Scottish party election where we got 12.5% of the vote. I know what 12.5% of the vote looks like and feels like on the doorsteps. I know what 30% of the vote looks yeah. and feels like on the doorsteps. You know, Scottish Labour are at that bottom end. I mean, they are at where we were at our lowest nadir in Scotland. Um, they are leaking votes to everyone um, in this campaign. And, you know, I, I think that does make that coalition very fragile for the future. However, these aren't Labour votes that are necessarily going to pro-independence parties. There's a reason that we've put on, you know, a third of a million votes in the last three years. And they've come, they've been people that have already been voting. They've been voting for other parties and largely they've been voting for the Labour Party. And they're choosing to come to us because we are a better advocate for staying part of the United Kingdom, for making sure that an honest day's work has an honest day's pay. And all of these kind of old traditional Labour values that are actually Scottish and, you know, Scottish values as well. But do you think Scotland needs a Labour Party? I mean, I, mean, I remember during the uh, Blair years, there were Labour colleagues of mine worried about the collapse of the Conservative Party. This idea that you needed a healthy opposition, that you needed. I think. Uh, I think every. I think every a, a level of equilibrium. Um, um, we have a very confrontational system at Westminster. I think every confrontational system needs to have, um, you know, that's almost a. a a balance and a weight to it and I've, I've never in my lifetime seen a party of government that has stopped being able to get legislation through the House of Commons and all of these other things um, without seeing the commensurate rise of the opposition party at the same time and I think that's one of the reasons we're in the situations that we are in and that's not just a Scottish Labour issue that's a UK Labour issue you know to me and, and obviously there are supporters of the Labour Party who will disagree, but to me, you don't look at that opposition front bench and think that, you know, they're ready to take over the country and the running of a G7 nation, that John McDonnell is about to become a finance minister, that, um, you, you know, that um, Diane Abbott is going to be in charge of security, that, you know, all, all of these things that, you know, I, I don't think the country is ready for that. Now, I remember the changeover in sort of 97. Great days. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and you know the the government, the the, the conservative government looked tired, it looked failing, but but the Labour Party looked like it was full of ideas. It looked at like it had people with competences. You looked at, um, you know, uh, George Robertson and thought, yeah, this guy could be in charge of our armed forces. And you looked at, um, at, at Gordon Brown and thought, yeah, this guy can add up. You know, <laughs> he's 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 got some ideas for the future. Um, uh, and I remember the changeover at the back end, back in two thousand and ten, and and you know the the kind of 
brooding presence in, in the Treasury that, that Gordon Brown had been always ready to take over and, and ready to, 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 you know, to fulfil whatever ambitions that he had for leadership did not play out once he moved from number 11 to number 10. And, and that was quite obvious. And you also saw, I thought you saw, um, in the Conservative Party, people like William Hague that looked as if they had a plan for foreign affairs uh, as a foreign secretary. You had people like uh, David Cameron, who clearly had a vision for what the future of, of Britain should be. Um, and I just don't see that from the current Labour opposition benches. Yeah, I, don't, I, mean, I, I don't think that cohesive policy platform is, is there. And that's that's what opposition gives you the time to do, is to build um, a, a vision of what happens. And that's why it's actually very hard for prime ministers to take over while their party are in government because they've not had that that thinking space. There's their ministers and their cabinet ministers are so busy running massive departments that it's hard to lift your eyes to the horizon sometimes. Oh, you mentioned Hague and Cameron and that sort of mm. conservatism. Do you see that on the conservative front bench? Well, I mean, I think the idea that any one strand in a broad church gets to be in charge forever is is for the birds. Yeah. You know, and you know, I'm I'm very open about the fact that I'm pretty wet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are you know, in Scotland. As, <laughs> well, yeah, that too. Uh, but, but, but in terms of what we used to call people, in that I'm very socially liberal as well as being fiscally conservative, and that's the strain of conservatism that I come from. And, and actually quite a lot of, of Scots come up you know, because we were never the Tory party in terms of our party history. We came up as liberal unionists and and then we joined with the Conservative Party only in the, the kind of 60s. So yeah. we, we have a slightly different political tradition. And sometimes you see that and sometimes, you know, we're indistinguishable from, from colleagues in other parts of the UK and in England and Wales. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I do think that we operate best when we're a broad church. Mm. And... Um, I was actually asked about this yesterday in a newspaper interview, and I, I don't think that there's not space for me in this party. And I think if it ever gets to the pace, place where there's not space for someone like me, then the party's in trouble, not just I'm in trouble, you know? So in terms of a prediction then, I, I, know, it's, <laughs> I know it's difficult. I know When's it's this going out? <laughs> uh, soon. Right. Um, in, in, How soon? Like, as in today? Oh, it'll be this days? week. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I... Uh, and with all the caveats that yeah. this is recorded on uh, the, what date is it? 21st. 21st, yeah. The 21st of November, with all the caveats about polls and it being yeah. miles away and the campaign and the manifestos and everything. And you can be as vague as you like. You can just yeah. say hung parliament, Tory's largest party, Labour majority. If you had to put a tenor on it. Oh, what does you... bless you for thinking that I don't bet. <laughs> <laughs> this is some sort of hypothetical. <laughs> Do you bet um, quite a lot? Uh, well... I, to be honest, do you know, I used to have a Paddy Power account and I, I shut it about three years ago and I haven't used it since, but I was having a look at some of the individual seat plans because yes. the national polls looked quite poor for Scotland and because I've been seeing how well our party is doing in some of them. There, I, I did, it briefly crossed my mind to have a cheeky accumulator, but I'm not sure if that counts as insider trading, so I haven't done it. And actually, our, you know... Larrick and Hamilton East at one point was at seven to one, and that was well worth some money. It's now at I think three to one and falling. So it's not worth the, it's not worth walking into an actual betting shop for. So. But it was only yeah. political. So if you went betting on horses or dogs or football. Oh or yeah, no, no, all of that. But are you? No, but I'm like the last of the one pound, two pound better. Yes. So I will do like a reverse tri cast for like fifty p. <laughs> you know what oh I mean? My like God. all of that, yeah. And do you do it all on the app or do you go into the bookies? No, 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 no. I think like a, I think probably like a lot of women, um, only felt liberated enough once I could do it in the house on on like my phone. Rather so you're not than... sneaking into coral. 
No, or no, no. I, I would Brooks. up until you know maybe up until ten years ago, I probably only went because that was time you had to physically go to bookies i would go for the grand national and that would be it yeah um and then when i was working at the bbc that big corrupting influence that it is <laughs> uh there was a couple of folk there that british that, betting company <laughs> well that you know it, it was just a bit of a laugh and but to be honest i mean i'm not I, you know i i genuinely i think the largest bet i've ever laid was a political bet actually i think i put a tenor on the Obamas having another child in office when they first got elected in their first nice. term. Yeah, it didn't come through, obviously. Damn it. Damn it. But um, like, that's literally the biggest bet I've ever placed. I genuinely am a 50p, £1, £2 better <laughs> because it's fun. And so at the start of every season, I would do like a, a who's going to win the Premier League, who's going to yeah. be the top scorer. But it would always be an accumulator. They're always like bets that are a gazillion to one that never come in because they're the most fun. Because yes. the potentiality of them is fun. And who, who have you bet on for the Premier League this season? Like I say, my, my, I closed my uh, account. Oh, of course, damn ago, it. So yeah, I haven't. But, um, yeah, what I, was your biggest win, by the way? Do you remember, do you remember any big wins? Um, I once went to the dogs at Shawfield in Glasgow, which is the last greyhound track in Scotland. It was uh, um, my former partner, uh, it was kind of like a... a was a greyhound. Family. No, no, no. <laughs> you call my ex a dog. That, that's really out of order. Like, get off. No, no. so it was a family day out because uh, her, her mum, so my ex-mother-in-law, used to quite enjoy it. And she turned up with the racing post and everything. It was, it was amazing. But I was just picking like the dogs that looked pretty or that I'd had a poo before they started running because I thought they'd be lighter, you know. So There's I, a logic I, to us. Yeah, yeah. So I did like a, I think it was yeah a reverse forecast for one of them and it came in and it was quite good. So I think I, I made about I don't know twenty quid off oh, of a two pound bet or something bad. like that. So I did all right. So, so I, the round was on me. So using that knowledge, <laughs> does Boris or Jeremy look like they've just had a poo? And which one? <laughs> which one looks more constipated? Well, I, I did watch the debate the other night, and uh, you know I think there was. I'm not. I'm not sure there wasn't a lot of people that chose to go to the toilet halfway through that because that was not a, a lot of talking shit. If not, well, I, you know, I just I thought the format was terrible. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought in terms of. If anybody sat down to try and learn what a party's position was on anything, they were going to come away from that none the wiser. I yeah. honestly, you know, as Julie Etchingham's a, a you know a really professional journalist, but that format was a stinker. And I, you know, I I don't I haven't spoken to anyone that watched it that thought th- that it was very good. No. Um, so your prediction for this election? <laughs> I think the Conservatives will be the largest party. I think um, if there is a majority, it won't be a large majority. Okay, so a, a, a slim a slim majority. Mm. And just in terms of what happens next for you, are you going to? You're going to stay as an MSP? Yep, so that's the plan. So our term here ends in May 2021. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've said that I'll you know, see you at the term um, and I will not be seeking re-election. So I'm going to have to get like a real job. It's terrifying. But, I mean, it, I suppose, you know, we've just talked about how you're staying in politics, but it's only, it's only for a couple of years now. I mean, I suppose the door is always open, isn't it? Well, I'm only 41. Do you know, there's a lot of people who don't get elected to well older than that. And well, four years older than me. Oh, am I? Yeah, I'm 37. God, you've had hard paper in, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> and you've been leader of a political party. I know. And I feel like I'm 106. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm, I feel like a, one of these divers that's in a compression chamber that I'm, I'm decompressing. So hopefully I don't get the bends on the way up. Well. But I've got a second act. Every, everybody, I believe everyone has a second act in them. I'm hopefully sure a I third as well. But, um, but for the moment, until my child and or any brothers or sisters that may come along after go to school, I think... There's a time to be spent not on the front line for a bit. So basically, I mean, you could open your own bookies, Davidson's bookies. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of people around here that would clear me out. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Pleasure. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ruth Davidson then. Who knows what the future holds for her? I spoke to her successor, Jackson Carlaw, as well, and began by asking him, as I interviewed him in his office, about some of the amazing political memorabilia he's got on his wall, including a letter from Richard Nixon. How on earth did you get a letter from Nixon? Uh, when I was a teenager, I read his biography, autobiography, and um, I was quite interested by everything he'd done in foreign affairs. I mean, obviously, some of the rest of the stuff was pretty shaky, but on foreign affairs, um, he'd been responsible for the whole detente movement. Uh, and I, I wrote to him, and I actually say I was a bit surprised 48 hours later to get a response. I mean, this was from, I thought he clearly had nothing better to do any longer, stuck out in La Casa Pacifica in California. Because this uh, 14-year-old teenager had written to him and, and he had found the time to write back. I was slightly disconcerted because he sent me a, a, a book plate for the book, um, which you had to lick uh, the edge of and put in. But he felt he had to give me a full set of instructions on how to, on how to lick the book plate and press it down firmly inside the book. So I then began to wonder just how flattered he'd been by my letter after all. But anyhow, there we are. But I, I guess what I, I remember about the thing at the time was being impressed uh, and understanding that um, you should never lose touch with anybody when you become a politician. And I think I've kind of always tried, therefore, to reply to everybody, and particularly to younger people, to always try and engage. You've got some other stuff here, a, a magnificent bust of Churchill and yep. a bust of Lenin. Yeah, a bust of Lenin. Is the Lenin bust ironic? It, well, it is in a sense. When I went across the Berlin Wall in the 1980s, uh, which was a great, great laugh because we had to go through Checkpoint Charlie. And um, I don't know if you ever went through Checkpoint Charlie in the day, but it, it was like two very narrow steel tunnels. And you went through the steel tunnel and, and anybody else you were with went up the other steel tunnel. And the guy I was with who was um, the director of the Conservative Party's passport, his job description, his passport was political agent. And I remember saying to him, I'm not so sure we're going to see you on the no, other side no, of this no, tunnel. No. But when you got across there, you had to take a certain amount of currency with you, which you weren't allowed to take back with you because they were looking for foreign exchange. So you'd take dollars across 
and you were given uh, German Reichmarks. You weren't allowed to bring the Reichmarks, but you had to spend them on something. And as you were leaving, the only thing that was available for sale with your Reichmarks was busts of Lenin. So that's why. So there you go. It's a memento from that time. It's a memento from that. I mean, thinking of. And actually, sorry. And that's a big chunk of the Berlin Wall. Well, you too. know what? It's bigger than the chunk I've got because I bought one on one of those fridge magnets yeah. and yours looks more real than mine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure the veracity of... Uh, and well, it was a friend of mine who was a government minister at the time who was there when it just came down and got a chunk and cut it in half. So I'm very proud of it. It's got, it's got metal and graffiti on it. So I think it's 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 an impressive an impressive space. Well, and, and of course, it's a it's a it's a very visual representation of what a hard border can mean for <laughs> for communities. Which which brings us on. You're a you're a unionist. I am. Um, which brings us on to to the, the politics of the day, which is. Firstly, that, that Boris Johnson's deal effectively means a border down the Irish Sea, uh, and that is something that people who care about the union um, can't seem to tolerate. I mean, can you justify it to yourself to support I that? can. I mean, I guess I'm of an age that um, I am very well aware of the troubles that there were on Northern Ireland. Um, I was at the Brighton Conference in 1984. The wife of the Scottish Conservatives died in that explosion. Um, the grief that we felt is, is nothing to the grief I know that will have been felt all over the, the province in, the, in, in all the years of the Troubles. And so I fully accept and understand that there are particular circumstances that need to be addressed in Northern Ireland, and I really wouldn't involve them in any political debate. And the fact that David Trimble, who was one of the architects of the Belfast Agreement, is supporting the deal... Uh, allows me to do so too. And I think the circumstances now in any event are different. Uh, They have a border with what will be a European state on the island. Uh, I just worry fundamentally that if we were to try and impose an arrangement like that in the United Kingdom, it would effectively end up with a border between Scotland and England. And so much, you know, four times as much of uh, Scotland's business and trade is with England, uh, not with the rest of the European Union, that that would be fundamentally against our interests. So it's, it's the fact it would be against our interests to have it here and that it addresses a particular need in Northern Ireland that arises out of, of a historical situation that does allow me to support it, yes. I think people do appreciate the, the specifics of, of Ireland and the politics of that regarding to, you know the, the border and everything, but it, it just makes the argument harder for you, doesn't it? Because people in Scotland who want to stay in the EU and want to stay in the UK are saying, well, Northern Ireland can get its own deal. England's getting what it wants. You saw Hamza Youssef on telly just the other night putting it in these words, that basically every other part of the UK is getting what it wants apart from Scotland. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't put it in those terms. I think what Scotland wants is to have, as we demonstrated in the 2014 uh, independence referendum, a close integral relationship with the rest of the United Kingdom. So much of our business and trade depends upon that. So I don't see that putting arrangements in place for Scotland, which would be prejudicial to that, would help us in any way at all. So no. There can, be a, there can be an impression, and it's always interesting when you go to different places, but there can be an impression sometimes in England, or, or specifically, let's be honest, in London, that Scottish independence seems like an inevitability, that some of the polling seems to bear out the fact that the, the, the yes side is just incrementally growing in popularity and that somehow Brexit makes that harder, Boris Johnson makes that harder. Do you feel as if, though, the case for the union is becoming harder to make? I don't, but I mean, I, I, and I'd answer it two ways. One, I do think there is a need to start arguing a fresh narrative for the union in Scotland. I mean, from my generation, 
it's possible to look at this bust of Churchill and to think back and to talk of everything that the United Kingdom achieved and that we shared and is part of our common history. But I'm aware that for much younger people, you know, the Second World War is a historical event. It, it's not going to have the same resonance. They want to know what is the union going to do for me uh, in the 20, 30, 40 years going ahead. And so we need to talk much more about how uh, Scottish science is going to be able to work with science across the rest of the UK to participate in cures for cancer or to tackle climate change or to create a much more dynamic economy which will fuel jobs because the age demographic in Scotland is, is one which is ageing faster than the rest of the UK. We're going to have to require and rely upon that much larger entity in order to protect our social services in the future. But I think we have to make that fresh case going forward. Do I think independence is inevitable? No, I don't. I don't. Although from one day to the next, there can be a row which can cause a spike. Um, in fact, the polls have been pretty consistent ever since the referendum, which was the biggest uh, democratic exercise we'd ever seen in Scotland. I mean, I, I'm laughing about going across the Berlin Wall at one point. When we had in my constituency in Eastwood, a 93.5% turnout. I remember thinking that's the sort of thing the Politburo used to say in the <laughs> 1970s. And we all used to say, how on earth did they get that turnout? It brought people out because they cared about it. And over 2 million voted to stay in the United Kingdom. That's a figure that no SNP party has achieved in any election results. 700,000 people voting for the SNP does not top 2 million people voting to stay in the Union. In terms of the kind of value challenge that Brexit presents to, to Scottish voters. And I, I sort of experienced this anecdotally through Scottish friends, is people who voted to stay in the UK because they thought that the UK had a broad set of values. They, they can live with the differences between Labour, Conservative and whatever. But that Brexit has been a real challenge to that. And it's not just the, const the literal constitutional settlement. It's also a sense that some people, say around the centre of Scottish politics, would look at the UK, would look at maybe in England and say... This is moving in a direction we didn't think it was moving in in 2014. We're not sure we're on the same path. I mean, over a million people in Scotland did vote to leave the European Union, but I'm not one of them. I mean, I, I was definitely someone who felt that uh, Scotland's future, the United Kingdom's future, was one which was remaining in partnership with the EU27. Um, but if you ask people in a binary vote, you have to respect that result. For me, therefore... It's all about the future relationships that we now strike. Not, I mean, this isn't just then with Europe. We, ha we cannot become an insular country. We may become a country that is independent outside of the European Union, but we have to rediscover that historical relationship that the United Kingdom had as an outward-looking look nation all across the globe. And I know because I've got two sons, you know, who don't understand the rationale of all of this, you know, who fell out with their grandmother uh, because she voted, she voted to leave, you know, and, and said all the things that I read in the papers, but grandma, you're not going to be here. What's it got to do with you? You should have been asking us how you wanted us to vote. Um, and, how does she take that, by the way? Well, she's very phlegmatic about these things and, and, and just and just laughs, actually. So, I mean, That's you know, right. let's say they're all still talking just. So, it, you know, we, we get there. But so, so I understand that dynamic. Um, I think there is there's there's one thing I, I do believe, though, that in the Scottish independence referendum, I found by the time we voted, really 80 percent of the vote was really polarised. And only 20% was somewhere in the middle. In the European referendum, I think the people who were sitting on either end of the spectrum were a much smaller percentage of the whole. And the vast majority of people were somewhere in the great big middle. They basically felt the EU was a culturally a good thing and that we should stay. 
I don't think it stirred their blood in quite the same way that the Association of the United Kingdom did. So it's a slightly different um, dynamic, I think, at play. You're playing a leading role in all these debates. Uh, how difficult is it being an interim leader of a political party? Well, I mean, I have been interim leader of the Scottish Conservatives longer than some permanent leaders of the <laughs> Labour Party have been leading their I mean, I, I I was asked by Ruth to sort of take over while she was having the baby, and now I've been left holding it. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't where I expected to be. Um, but I work with Ruth, obviously. I've been involved in politics for a very long time, and as you pointed out, some of the uh, curiosities and, and mementos have all demonstrate that. Um, and I've been so impressed because Ruth's politics, what she did to re-energise the Conservative Party in Scotland, absolutely is in tune with me. When I was a young teenager getting involved, um, we had a politician called Teddy Taylor, who was the, one of the last Conservatives to hold a seat in Glasgow. And Teddy said to me, Jackson, I represent the people in Glasgow who do not live in big hoosies. And it, that has been the epitome of my own kind of perception of politics. It's not about representing uh, beyond, it's about looking at the people who have got an aspirational expectation for themselves, for their families, but for whom they haven't had that realised, and that's what conservatism should reach out to. So when Ruth came along and walked us right back into the cities again, so that we've now got eight councillors in Glasgow, um, in Easter House, you know, in places that you would never have imagined that we could ever uh, have representation, that's my kind of conservative politics. But in terms of the role of a, an interim leader, I mean, is it your job to carry out her will? Do you have a certain amount of autonomy over the direction of the party while you're in charge? Oh, well, I mean, clearly the first time she was off, we were expecting her back. So I was the interim leader. And now I'm the leader on an interim basis, in a <laughs> sense, because, yes, I'm directing the campaign in Scotland. I mean, we've got a different slogan up here. We've got our, our complete campaign autonomy. Um, we didn't change our Twitter feed last night when we were commenting on the debate. Uh, so we, we go our own way, albeit we are very much part of the United Kingdom family of Conservatives. So that's in terms of the relationship with the UK party. They just let you get on with it. Does Ruth let you get on with it? Oh, yeah. I mean, Ruth's been a fantastic help, by the way. I mean, she's she's working hard in the campaign. But no, she has she has stepped back as leader. And, you know, no, I'm I'm leading the party as matters stand just now. And we'll we'll worry about how permanent an arrangement that might be after we've got the general election out of the way. And do you have do you have a threshold in mind? Of what? Seats. seats. Yeah, well, vote share. I'm, or I'm really nervous about that, Matt, because... Uh, if I had tried to predict what we would get in 2017, I would have seriously undercalled the result we managed to achieve. Uh, we have constantly surprised in the last five years since the referendum. Uh, that result in 2016, where we became the largest opposition party in the Scottish Parliament, beating the Labour Party. People said, well, that's a flash in the pan. That'll never happen again. Following year, doubling the number of councillors, becoming the second largest party in local government. And then 13 MPs, the biggest number we'd had since the 1970s. Um, and, you know, again, the second party in Scotland. So I believe that what Ruth did was associate the party with a series of ambitions and aspirations, and people understand that we sit somewhere differently from the rest of the party in the United Kingdom, and I think the Prime Minister's comfortable with that, actually, uh, and therefore I'm kind of, as the campaign unfolds, and I'm out there, and I'm hearing how it's going, I'm pretty pleased at this point. Still another three weeks to go, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. I mean, you had some phenomenal results last time and came very close in other places yeah. as well. One of those places is Perth and North Perthshire. Yeah. Uh, Pete Wishart holds that seat with a majority of just 21 he does. votes. Yeah. When you look at those seats that you almost took last time, that you might take this time, is it fair to say that in a seat like that where it's Conservative finishing second to a, a, a very slim defeat to the SNP, that these are basically mini 
indie refs, where these are kind of proxies for the wider independence debate? Or are there other issues like Brexit or maybe even something else? I, I think there are always other issues. But, I mean, it's interesting if you look back to where the Conservative Party was strong uh, back, say, in the 1970s and 80s, it was across the borders... It was up through the northeast of Scotland with a few seats in the main cities and Perthshire. And Perthshire has been of the former territory that we once uh, were successful in, the one where we've not yet started to win back the seats. So uh, winning, um, we, we obviously won one in Oakland, South Perthshire last time, but North Perthshire used to be a, a strong conservative fiefdom. So there are a lot of people there who have a vested interest in reuniting Pete with his music. <laughs> I, mean, I just wonder if... If it's other things that might win it for you there, other than just these constitutional debates? Well, I mean, I would like to think, because, I mean, clearly the key issues of the campaign are stopping Indy Rev 2, getting Brexit sorted, moving the country on. But as the manifesto... Unleashing the potential. Yeah, well, that's actually, that, that's, that's more of a London line, but uh, we'll move on up here and we get things sorted rather than done. But when we get into the manifesto, um, clearly, I mean, the Prime Minister's brought out some talk about, uh, you know, the, the increasing the threshold for national insurance. We've already announced up here a fundamental review of duty for the whisky industry, which, of course, is relevant um, to Scotland and the North. Uh, there, are, uh, there are other policies, uh, the, the policy and migration of having the seasonal workers scheme extended from two and a half up to 10,000 people, which is very important to the fruit picking and hotel sectors in Scotland, which we've now got a concession on as a permanent change. So there, there are obviously always other issues. But given that we have a devolved parliament, where in essence, um, health, education, our local economy are very much the subject of debate and will be debated in 2021, I suppose they are wrapped up in a sense that they have been ignored as issues in Scotland because we have been so focused on this permanent discussion of constitutional politics. And I think that's why we want to move on from it, because I think the country's heartily sick of it. And they've seen these other things just not really getting the focus and attention that they deserve. If you say to people, what's more important to Nicola Sturgeon, your school, your hospital and the Scottish economy are getting independence. And fundamentally, most people will say, well, she's more interested in independence. And that's what we've got to change. You've got an opposite challenge to the SNP. They managed to be in opposition to the Westminster government, in government in Scotland, being able to affect change. You're in opposition in Scotland, in power in the UK, but as a Scottish politician trying to convince Scottish voters to vote for a, not just a Conservative party that can feel distant, but for UK parties that can often feel very distant, even to parts of England, let alone to parts of Scotland. In this election, do you get a sense that Boris is energising the voters of Scotland? Um, I, I think that there is a, a particular um, support uh, for the job that he has been doing. I mean, I thought it was fascinating to me that in the first major debate of the contest between him and Jeremy Corbyn, he put the Scottish question absolutely at the centre of what he had to say. So, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I have previously said that I'm very much judging Boris Johnson by the job he is doing as Prime Minister rather than the things he said before he became Prime Minister. And if I look at what he's done, he's secured a, you know, a deal which the European Union have supported on a, a fresh arrangement for us to leave the European Union. He's talking about the full review of duty for the whisky industry. He's four square behind the union within the United Kingdom. I mean, I think people are responding to the fact that he is strong on those issues. And so, yes, I mean, I think that has actually proved uh, to be quite positive. But in terms of this election, is, is there a danger that the Conservative Party in Scotland basically just tries to hoover up 
leave voting tries to go for the 38% mm. rather than reach out? No, because as I said earlier on, I think that my ambition is the same as Ruth's, which is to reach out to people on the basis that the only way forward for a Conservative Party in Scotland is as a soft Conservative, blue Conservative, aspirational Conservative Party. One which, nation? Uh, well, I mean, it, I suppose you can use these sobriquets from... I mean, they've been running around for 100 years. but well, since Israel, or longer, I yeah. So, I, I, but it's the substance that underpins that. And I don't, that's why you know, I'm really pleased about the... Uh, raising of the threshold for national insurance contributions because that takes people who are on low earnings uh, up potentially over the lifetime of a parliament to 12,500, which gives them another £460. In fact, one of the questions I'll be asking here in Scotland is to get a commitment from the Scottish uh, National Party and government here that they won't, now that they've got tax raising powers, raise the taxes of people in Scotland in order that they can take all that money uh, without allowing that tax cut to actually be passed on to them. And, you know, that's what they've sneakily done in respect of other tax reductions that have taken place already. Um, and then they say, well, your taxes haven't gone up. No, but they're now like £3,000 higher than somebody doing the same job south of the border. Which, of course, means why would people come to Scotland to be a consultant in a hospital where we've got vacancies if they can do the same job, you know, on a, on a much higher rate of pay elsewhere? This is a December election campaign. Yeah. It's, people are moaning that it's cold, dark and wet. I mean, you're used to that all year round, of course. So you're kind of, uh, you're hardened to these uh, weather conditions that people south of the border, perhaps, uh, are not used to campaigning in. What are your tips for surviving election campaigns, staying healthy and sane? Well, you know, one of the letters you pointed to on the wall was actually in relation to the very first election I fought, which was a parliamentary by-election for Westminster in 1982, 37 years ago. The year I was born. In December. Oh, God. So the vote was in December. And it was a proper winter. I mean, it was snow and ice the entire, <laughs> the entire three weeks of the campaign. Um, and, I mean, the lessons, you, you, you drank a lot of hot drinks, you realise that the political day is much shorter. Uh, you don't really want to be disturbing, certainly elderly people, at a much earlier time in the evening than you might do in, in the summer. Um, and uh, have, a, have a lot of medication with you. I've already <laughs> seen quite a few casualties as I've been going about. People who've said, hey, I'm just doing leafleting and running the board now because I've lost my voice and I can't speak. So, so it's definitely challenging. And I think this week was very difficult. I was just talking to um, someone I'm quite friendly with, the Labour Party, who's standing as a candidate, an MSP who's standing in a candidate, who said we literally almost had to take, you know, uh, jacks along to prize open the letterboxes on Monday because they were frozen solid <laughs> to try and get a leaflet through the door and she, she did say to me why am I doing this and I you know she said but anyhow she did but so I, I I'm surprised actually that, that there is quite a lot of a good atmosphere out there I mean that everybody is quite enjoying doing it um that's sad, isn't it? <laughs> no, not, not to me. Not to me. And listeners of this podcast, I'm sure people will fully identify with that. Uh, but they are. And, and so I, I think that, and of course, a lot more people vote by post. So it's quite different even to that by-election I fought all those years ago. And I think what a lot of people are additionally now applying to vote for, by post because they recognise that, you know, the weather's going to potentially be more challenging. But I think people and in Scotland um, recognise that there are some fundamentally very important issues at stake. And in my own constituency, we regularly have one of the highest turnouts in every election in the United Kingdom. We're usually in the top five or the top 20 in wow. terms of turnouts. Why is that? 
I don't know. I mean, I think historically um, it was a very safe Conservative seat, which the Labour Party won, but which was then always toe-to-toe, so everybody really made the effort. Um, and we regularly have turnouts of over 80% wow. in general elections. So it's, it's, it, it's a big thing. And I suspect, and that's why we had that 93.5% turnout, whoever it was, in, in 2014. I sus- we had the highest, ter- one of the highest turnouts in the European, ele- in the European referendum in the UK. Um, so we're regularly used to that. And I just think, you know, a lot of people in this election actually think there's a heck of a lot at stake. And I suspect people will feel they want to come out and vote. And obviously... I hope very much that they will vote to stop in the Ref 2, get Brexit sorted and move on. Um, I, I hate to ask because I know predictions are so hard, particularly this far away from polling day, but I am asking every guest. And you can you can interpret however you like. You don't have to put a number on it. You could say a hung parliament, Tory's largest party. You could predict a Tory majority of 101, whatever you like. At this point, and with the caveat that it's weeks till polling day, if you had to put a tenor on it, what would your prediction be? I think, I mean, I actually, if I look back over my lifetime, believe that by accident or design, the public usually get the result they wanted. And I think they are, my own impression now is that they, at this particular point, they are fed up with dither and delay and want something done. And so I think there will be a majority government. And at this stage, and I'm confident it's going to be a conservative majority government. Jackson Carlow, thank you very much. Well, thanks to Jackson and thanks to Ruth for being such brilliant guests. I had a fantastic time interviewing them both at the Scottish Parliament. Went to First Minister's Questions, which I would recommend everyone try and do at some point. It's different to Prime Minister's Questions, but it's still got that thrill of seeing people held to account and a beautiful chamber. And in terms of a spectator, it's a more comfortable seat you get than the one you get uh, in the public gallery in the Commons. You've got a bit more space. You're not sat behind a huge screen. You feel closer to the action. Um, and you really get a sense of the talented people in Scottish politics. So I would thoroughly recommend that and a visit to the Scottish Parliament in general. I'll be back after the weekend. Enjoy the weekend. And do keep emailing your stories into politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, any particularly tales of mishaps are welcome, but any funny campaigning stories would be great. Please, as well, if you can... Just leave a review on whatever platform you listen to this to and just tell as many people as possible about it. Um, It's already been a thrilling election campaign. Thank you so much for your lovely, kind comments about the show. I'm glad you're enjoying it. And I'll see you after the weekend. Ta-ra. Listener.